Good morning. My name is Steve Coleman. I'm a member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. I was reading an article by Christine Hoover online. She began her article this way. I'm not sweet. I should be, but I'm not. That's what I thought to myself as I pulled into the garage and closed it behind me, sitting safe in the cocoon of my home and free from the opinions of others. I had just been thinking of someone who is sweet, how much I love her, and how I wish I were sweeter myself. I couldn't find a way to hide from all the thoughts, all the condemning thoughts of everything I am not. If it sounds like I've been through this before, it's because I have. The thoughts speak so loudly they seem real and true. I'm not sweet enough. I'm not enough for my friends and my husband. I should be doing more. I'm not mom enough. I'm too much of all the wrong things and not enough of the right things. Have you ever felt like you were not enough? She went on to talk about self-condemnation versus conviction by the Holy Spirit. What she wrote made me remember times in the past when I felt so hopeless, I thought maybe I wasn't even saved. That I was such a failure at not doing enough of the right things that God wouldn't want me. After all, doesn't James say faith without works is dead? Have you ever questioned whether or not you were really a Christian? Added to those internal doubts, I've read some statements made by Bible teachers which I think don't correctly represent the book of James in the context of that passage. Here are some quotes. Churches today are filled with people who hold to a faith that does not save. James referred to this as a dead faith, meaning a mere empty profession. And James describes the kind of faith that equals nothing. He calls it dead faith in verse 17, in verse 20, and again at the end of the chapter in verse 26, dead faith. Now the point that you want to understand as you approach this passage is that there's a kind of faith that does not save. There's a kind of faith in God that does not save. There's a kind of faith in Jesus Christ that does not save. Well, I cannot agree with that interpretation of James. So let's take a look at James for a bit here this morning. I think you might see some surprising things. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 2. Let's read through the section. I'm going to begin in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith... Without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Well, we're presented here with a problem. What is James actually saying? It's a difficult passage. Many put it up among the top three or four difficult passages to try to interpret in the New Testament. Because you see, there are dozens of verses in the New Testament that make it clear that salvation comes through faith, belief, alone. You see, it's the same word in Greek, faith and belief. It's the simple word belief. Here are four of the verses from elsewhere in the New Testament. Romans 3.28, man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 2.16, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of law, since by the works of law no mortal man will be justified. Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And then John twenty thirty one. This is a pretty key verse. John writes and gives us the, the purpose of his book of John, the Gospel of John. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's a critical point to get straight, the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So first of all, if you believe in Jesus the Christ for eternal life, you are saved. But why does James seem to sound different from these and many other verses in the New Testament. When we read faith without works is dead, we know we have to look deeper and use some of our principles of interpretation to be sure of exactly what James is describing. We'll not be able to examine every aspect of this section, but I hope to give you enough to encourage you in your own study. First thing we're going to do, good interpretation, is to look at the context and try to understand that. You see, James is a very practical oriented toward very practical things. It was written to the 12 tribes, which is a reference to the Jews. It's one of the most Jewish books of the New Testament. Some people have said that if you remove the references to Jesus, James would fit well with the canon of the Old Testament. Another, another way to look at it, has, it sort of has the flavor that you, you find when you read the Sermon on the Mount. James seems to have some central themes. You know, I've always looked at it as basically a set of independent teachings on Christian life issues. But instead, there's evidence of an argument James builds through chapters 1 and 2. He's writing to brothers and sisters, first of all. He says that numerous times. The attitudes and behaviors they should have when their faith is tested. The endurance and wisdom they should add to their faith to mature them, to bring their faith to completion. That's what he talks about early in chapter 1. He goes on to then challenge them to receive the word and do the word. And the one, the person that does the word, he says, will be blessed. He talks about pure and undefiled religion. 
And that pure and undefiled religion keeps the person who does those things unstained by the world. In chapter 2, he begins with, do not hold your faith with an attitude of favoritism. In other words, live out the faith that you have. So he talks about the man with the gold ring being treated well, and yet you are treating the poor man very badly. So if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're, you're doing well. If you're showing partiality, partiality, then it's sin. So we have this ongoing discussion by James about Christians making sure their faith is informing their practical behavior and attitudes in how they endure testing, how they effectively grow as a Christian, and how they treat others. And he includes that those that practice these kinds of behaviors will grow toward maturity, they'll be blessed, and they'll remain unstained by the world. Everything is practical, and everything points to good things that will come to a believer who exercises their faith. So with that as the background context, we're now going to consider James's use of language and the examples that he uses to make his point. The language of the text, James, right off at the beginning, 2.14 to 17, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Earlier in chapter 2, favoritism was labeled as sin, not a loss of salvation. Here, this is a similar situation, and it's being uh, identified as a faith that is dead. These two situations are similar because in both cases, partiality is being shown and that partiality hurts the one in need. You can read that love withheld, that kind of partiality. In this case, the favored person is the reader, self. Self couldn't be bothered to get off the couch to help a brother and sister. Couldn't spare the money. Be warned and be filled because... I don't feel like doing anything more. So it's partiality. It's partiality toward self and and away from the person in need, just like the earlier case was showing partiality toward a rich person and treating a poor person badly. If both actions are withholding love, then both are acting contrary to God's command, love your neighbor as yourself, and contrary to the nature of new life in Christ. So let's tentatively put a pin in the idea that where he says in this situation that faith is dead, it's parallel with the idea that favoritism is bad. It's a sin. And that the idea of faith is dead may mean the faith is not demonstrating its true nature. It's being ineffective or not being used or is not active rather than that there's no faith. Well, before we leave this section, note that phrase, can faith save him? Or some translations say, can that faith save him? Or can such faith, such a faith save him? It's asked in, in the form of a rhetorical question that assumes the answer is no. Well, what in the world does that mean? What do we do with this? The question really is, save from what? 
what James indicates by using the same word elsewhere in his book in post-salvation contexts is physical death or some kind of physical destruction. Let's take a look at several of those. James 1.21, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen there and so on. And, and he says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So notice he starts off uh, this section by saying, my dear brothers and sisters. So we're talking about believers. And he says, get rid of all this moral filth and evil and accept the word which can save you. And we know in scripture there are at least uh, a couple of cases where people continued to sin and as a result experienced physical death. So it certainly is a possibility that probability is talking about that. But the, the larger picture is it's not, this is a believer being saved from the effects of moral filth and the evil that they're involved in, that idea of unstained by the world. Let's look at the second one, James 4.11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Again, a section headed up with brothers and sisters. Don't slander one another. He's talking to believers, people who are already saved. And he's talking about this. And he refers to the one and only lawgiver who's able to, on the one hand, save and on the other hand, destroy. So we know from the context of the entire New Testament that salvation is not something that you can get, you can have, and then lose at some point. Uh, we don't have time to pursue that, but we can we can show that in a lot of, of verses. So what is this destroy that's being talked about? I think it's just talking about the, uh, the power of God that he can save, he can create, he can redeem, he can do all these things. He can also destroy, he can disrupt, he can... Uh, do what he what he wishes, and I think it's not beyond the idea to put in there uh, physical death. The last one, James five nineteen, starts off again. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this: whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Again, talking to believers, if one of you should wander. And that person will bring them back by turning that sinner from the air of their way. They'll save them from death. Don't think, don't think it's talking about eternal death, the loss of salvation. It's talking about physical consequences of sin. So we have this as the context when James is talking about being saved. So can that faith save him? A faith that's not active, a faith that a person is not letting inform his or her behavior. So his or her behavior is different, is acting differently than the new life that's in them. 
they're not protected from the damage and the corruption of sin in the world. You see, belief, faith alone guarantees eternal life, but it is not a promise for blessings in life, not a promise for experiencing the joy of the Lord. It's not by itself a promise for the peace of God ruling in your heart. It's not a promise that you'll remain unstained by the world. In fact, you may know Christians who are caught in the addiction to alcohol, drugs, or sex. Christians that are suffering because of bad decisions that they've made. It's very possible to suffer those kinds of effects as a believer. So our belief guarantees eternal life. Guarantees becoming a new creation, being alive in spirit, being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and being declared righteous for all time and eternity. So back to our example. Faith, without showing impartiality and love for others, is a faith that's not having an impact on behavior. It is useless in effective Christian living. So the people go away hungry, and we go away reinforcing our own obsession or slavery to self. So the second example in the text is Abraham. And starting in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of his works, faith was perfected or completed is the idea there. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned, to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see, man's justified by works and not by faith alone. You know, that occurs in in chapter 22 of Genesis. If you go back in Genesis to chapter 15, you read what it's quoting there. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was one of the times the Lord spoke to him and gave him these promises. So now the example is being said, you know, he now in chapter 22, he does this thing out of faith and his faith was completed uh, because his actions aligned with what that belief was. It's not that he gained righteousness at that time. He demonstrated that he did believe God. It didn't change his belief. And this Genesis 22 and this passage here in James isn't suggesting that he now only believed. Instead, it was just that he demonstrated what he believed. He validated it. The other Old Testament example is Rahab. In the same way, verse 25, in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. In the same way, James says, Rahab believed God and her faith was justified by what she did. Her faith was demonstrated and could be seen when she hid the spies, helped them escape, and sent the pursuers in the wrong direction. You know, before she does that, in Joshua, we, we read Rahab testifying, and she says... I know that the Lord has given you this land. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God 
is God in heaven above and on earth below. Her belief came before the actions that demonstrated that she believed. And what James is focusing in on are the actions that were informed by her faith, the actions that were consistent with her righteousness. You know, the final example that James uses here is a body and a spirit. And without the spirit, the body is dead, just like faith and works. Without works, the faith is dead. We know that as James talks about faith and works, he's not talking about having or not having eternal life. The context of the book of James is addressing brothers and sisters. Eternal destiny is not on the table. Instead, works are being discussed as activities we are supposed to do because of the new life in us, not activities we do in order to obtain new life or as part of a package where, okay, you have the right kind of faith now. So as James phrases it, faith without works is dead. That is, the faith is not seen. It's not making a difference in, uh, in the body, in the, in the example he's using here. Example of the body. The, the, the animating spirit has no visible effects on that body. The body doesn't move. It's not effective. The spirit's not, this animating spirit's not making an impact. It's dead. It's useless. You know, if we, to wrap this up, if we use a car as a picture of salvation, everything to start the car and keep it running is under the hood. A couple years ago, I was in a rental car, and it was the first time I'd ever been in a car with a push-button start. I didn't even have to twist my wrist to turn a key. Push. The car hummed to life like a contented cat. That's how salvation is. We believe we push the button and God does the rest. Now the car is running. Now we have new life. We are saved. However, in a large parking lot, you cannot tell if a car is running until you spot the backup lights come on and the car back out of the space. A car is just running but not moving is not effective. It really isn't doing anything. It's not driving. It's not going anywhere. Nothing's happening. It's just sitting there like all the other parked cars which aren't running. It's not performing its transportation function. Just like faith without works is not effective. It's not seen by others, and it isn't having its impact. In other words, it's not performing its function of displaying God through its life. Faith without works is ineffective. There's nothing to be seen. It's not performing its function, although it's alive. You really have to grab the steering wheel, put it in gear, and step on the gas. This is the message of James and of this text. Until you... Uh, Press that gas pedal and get the car moving. The car isn't performing its function, even though it's running. James is saying, look, you're running. Now let's get this thing in gear and, and really, uh, really work and have this faith work itself out. 
So to finish up here with a final word, sometimes these verses are used to create salvation insecurity. People point to them and say, look, if you don't, if you're not doing the right things, if we're, if we can't see these correct kinds of activities, then you're not a true believer. You have a spurious faith. And that's wrong. Sometimes this passage is used to scare or guilt people into reading their Bible more, serving more, praying more, giving more. Wrong. It's not what James is talking about. There's no scare tactic here. There's no insecurity of salvation. There's an encouragement to have your faith inform your behaviors and your actions. Acting like your new nature. Not because you lose your salvation if you don't, but because you're free from slavery to self. You're alive. You're running. You can do that. As, you know, someone that is not saved is in slavery to self. They cannot do those actions. You are free because you have that new life. So James is saying, let the new nature thrive and drive. Let it animate your faith. And we can do that by praying, asking God what it is he wants us to do. Who is he going to put in our path today to say an encouraging word to? Um, Any way that we can show love to others. Maybe we should pick up the phone and call somebody to encourage them. There's lots and lots of ways to work that out. There's no one script for everybody. There's no one list of do's. For everybody, it's letting the new nature, letting the spirit within you uh, guide you to uh, expressing that new nature, that love for others. And that's what James is about. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and the encouragement to have our faith energize what we do. We know we can do that with great confidence because of the security of our salvation. We know we belong to you. Thank you for that. In your name, amen.